It's Jess, and this is The Podling, a podcast that's exploring what linguistics looks like inside and out of the classroom, starting with our very own professors here at Western. And before we dive into this interview, I want to say thanks for listening. I appreciate you being here, and I hope that wherever this episode finds you, that you're doing all right. This time around, I got to speak with Dr. Jordan Sandoval, whose enthusiasm for language and helping others explore its mysteries is just so compelling, and it reminds me of how Jordan says she feels listening to her students ask new questions and seek out data. You'll also hear about some collaborative research she's been working on that involves phonological awareness as part of second language acquisition. And we talk about the experience of finding out you're a linguist. As always, infinite gratitude to Graham Blair for providing this episode's transcript. And now, on to the interview. Thank you so much for being here. How has spring quarter been for you so far? Uh, it hard. Good, like every quarter in different ways. But I think I'm ready to be back in person. Yeah, I think even for all of the things that being remote has allowed us to do in lots of ways and all the reevaluations it's allowed us to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, in some ways it's... I guess that expression is blessing in disguise. I think I have learned a lot of technology. <laughs> we all have learned a lot of new technology and um, new ways of doing old things. Mm-hmm. But I am ready for those to be supplemental rather than um, supplanting. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think, is a really excellent way to put that. <laughs> um, that reflects how I feel in classes where a lot of the spontaneity of teaching I think can be lost where you have to do a lot of setup to just yeah yeah well before we get too in depth on anything I would like to ask if you would introduce yourself uh, your background your roles at Western uh, topics you research in and or teach anything else you'd like to tell us yeah so introducing myself I'm Jordan uh, Sandoval and I am um, I'm assistant professor of phonology in the linguistics department here at Western, and I've been here at Western for, who I guess this is my 13th year. Um, nice. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> I had to do some adding there for a moment. And I focus primarily in thinking about sounds. Wonderful. Did I hit all of the points? Yes. Yes. So... You do lots of really cool research, and that was like my first awareness of you as a professor in the department. And I'm wondering if you would tell us about some of your research projects. Yeah, I've done a lot of different things uh, <laughs> over over the years, and what I'm doing now is something that I'm spending most of my energy on now. So when I first started at Western a long time ago, I shared an office in the humanities building with um, Dr. Kirsten Dricky, who's a Spanish professor. And we didn't really manage to coordinate our office hours such that we were alone in the office when office hours were happening. Instead, I got to listen in on a lot of her office hours, 
um, and vice versa. And in so doing, you know, this is 10 plus years ago, Mm -hmm. in so doing, I was fascinated by when students would come and would have questions about the language. I didn't know things about Spanish. I continue to not know many things about Spanish. (laughs) Um, But the kinds of questions that they would ask, I would occasionally have thoughts about. They would say something about, well, it sounds like you're doing this, or how do I make sure that I am doing this? Um, And so my linguistics brain was turned on in these language learning environments. And then after the student would leave, I would say, hey, Kirsten, question. So they were asking about this, and I was wondering, would it be reasonable for us to explain it like this? And she would say something like, actually, I hadn't even thought about approaching it from that perspective, but I could imagine that explaining it like that might give them some um, ability to understand this a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And so from very early on in that shared office experience, we realized that the language teaching and kind of the explicit mm, linguistics instruction, that there was this kind of potential for piggybacking. Uh, for mm-hmm. taking some of the, the stuff in linguistics and, and using that to help students learn some of this second language. And that's not a new thing. People have been thinking that for a long time. But our thoughts were, how could we make that maybe a little bit more explicit? Or how could we test the ways in which um, explicit phonological awareness would help students with um, perception and production in their L2? Namely, here in this context, um, these English Uh, speaking language learners of Spanish. And so Mm -hmm. 2018, um, you know, a while after that, we started to formalize this idea of doing this research and started to develop some kind of linguistic training materials in terms Mm -hmm. of what does the sound system of Spanish look like? How is that distinct from the sound system of English? How can we train these otherwise linguistically naive um, Spanish language learners in ways that don't feel overwhelming, but that give them the tools that they need to be able to self-analyze their Spanish productions, make comparisons to that of native speakers, um, make adjustments to their own um, productions, and how much attending to some of those characteristics of the language would facilitate their perception and language learning of other things. Um, and so we kind of started the project in 2018 and are, it's evolved in a lot of different ways since then. Um, but that is kind of the vein of research that I'm most interested in and focused on right now. Mm-hmm. That one's so cool. I, it makes me think of all of the language learning classes that I've had and the ones that happened before I had any linguistic knowledge and the ones after. Um yeah. Say more. I'm just excited. That was my (laughs) inhale of, tell me more. (laughs) Yeah. I had taken French for a long, long time. And then uh, this is all before I came to Western. I had taken a Spanish program where all of the lectures were in Spanish, which was one of the most, I think, intense periods of growth I've ever had. And we had Spanish classes at the same time. And I was in like a beginner level because I hadn't spent time on Spanish. And I just could observe the things that people in that class were struggling with because they, you know, I could observe it from, of course, their behavior and also them expressing, like, I, how do I do this with my mouth or confusion about um, differences in dialect, which I think is a decently common thing with learning Spanish in the U.S. in particular, maybe anywhere, depending on the level of Spanish speaking in that place. 
but you know people asking well what's the the like the tap sound like not understanding what that is and you know replacing it with our english r and having the opportunity this is like the one moment i remember getting to say well we have that sound in english you do it all the time it's the same one just stick it there and like watching that be the light bulb for people um and then like the confidence that follows along with that when they're like i already know how to do this yeah, I think the confidence factor is a really big one. It's like this little amount of metalinguistic awareness and all of a sudden students feel empowered to like, oh, I already know how to do that. I'm just going to change it in the following way and suddenly new language. Or, wow, mm-hmm. that was so confusing, but now that I have a framework to understand what's going on there, like now things are clicking in an interesting way. And I yeah. think... I mean, you mentioned this as, you know, someone who's studied other languages as well as linguistics. And, you know, that's a common thing about linguists. We often have this background in, like, fiddling with other languages. Yeah, <laughs> Whether that yeah. is, um, you know, many course coursework years or just playing around with learning different languages. But there's this overarching thread I have found in our undergraduate linguistics population that... This idea of, well, once I, you know, started doing linguistics, all of a sudden my language learning changed. The way that I approached it changed. The confidence that I had in knowing that I could acquire these things changed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it's like this hidden superpower that we can like unlock by doing this kind of thinking about uh, linguistics as Mm -hmm. its own thing instead of subsumed under language learning. Yeah. And it's what's so interesting to me about having that metalinguistic toolbox to bring to language learning is that that's not totally how we acquire language at first, like without that consciousness of, oh, my mouth is doing this thing to make that sound. So it's so weird, I feel like, to then acquire that knowledge and then you can better acquire more language. Mm -hmm. Although I know that that one is complicated and filled with many, many other things and subfields and... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's all those people who know so much about language learning, but we often talk about, you know, second language learning is distinct from first language acquisition and that one is, you know, often conscious and the other one unconscious. Yeah. But it's interesting how, you know, making that, those kinds of connections allows us to be able to do the conscious learning in a new way. Mm -hmm. It's almost as though old statement. It's almost as though we're all linguists, like we're born as linguists. That is, we're born with this desire and this drive to like analyze language, to like make sense of it, to start to notice the patterns, to start to like create these hypotheses. Like we generate, you know, in our own mind, these predictive rules like, oh, this is, this must be what is going on. This is why I'm hearing what I'm hearing. This is how I can map it onto my mental representations that are, you know, developing. Mm -hmm. But we don't know that we're doing it. Because, you know, maybe it's this unconscious process early on, and maybe we lose some of that um, ability. I'm not the right person to talk to about that. Maybe we'll we'll work with McNeil on this. (laughs) Um, But it seems like as we age, we have to be really intentional about recognizing those patterns. We have to be intentional about learning how to do the analysis, how to take this, you know, output and work our way back to like what is going on inside of our brains as we're you know, what's, what's causing that to come out of speakers' mouths. But once we have that ability, um, one of the really cool things that 
you get trained in, in, in linguistics, and that we're working here at Western at really developing those skills in all of our um, undergrads, like all of a sudden we can apply that to mm-hmm. learning whatever language. But it's like, it's at one level easy because we were already doing that. We just didn't know that right, we were doing right. that, right? We're constantly going through life doing this kind of analysis stuff. It's just we have to stop and think about what we're doing um, in order to recognize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly cool moment that getting to watch people have that realization, especially in online spaces when people kind of break down what's happening in language. That is, I think, in part what led me to study linguistics, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people who like don't even know that or have some vague idea that linguistics is a thing people study, but they just get so fascinated and like knee deep in it. And it's the most like, I don't know. I like watching other people having their minds blown. It's real cool. (laughs) It's one of the fascinating parts or the best parts about. And what's awesome is that those kind of light bulb moments that you're noting, you know, you can recognize in online spaces, like, You'll see someone post, uh, hey, English has this weird adjective order thing that you have to do it in this order. And then all of the comments below are like, what? How do I know this already without knowing it? And so it's interesting, right? Because those those light bulb kind of moments happen with our L1s mm-hmm. and they happen with languages that we're learning. They do. Right. We're like, wait, that's what's going on here this whole time. I didn't know it. Like in, in Spanish, it's... Again, I don't know Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) This is the linguist caveat. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I know about Spanish. Um, So sounds organized into syllables. In English, we when we start a word with a vowel, we'll just like create an onset, usually like a glottal stop. So we'll say something Mm -hmm. like the apple instead of the apple. Mm-hmm. In Spanish, one of the things that the language does is when you need an onset for some like word initial vowel, you'll just grab it from the previous word. So you'll take that coda, that ending of the previous word, and like resyllabify it. Like it was a coda of a word when the word was said by itself, but now I squish these words together, that ending sound is going to become a beginning sound instead. Mm. And this process of resyllabification is one of the things that makes Spanish really hard for English-speaking L1 Spanish learners to listen and make sense of Spanish. Because it's like all of these sounds are switching their words. So it's hard to be like, oh, all of those belong to one word, all of those belong to another word. But as soon as students are taught, like, okay, here are syllables. Here are the parts of syllables. Here's how syllables are formed. Spanish likes to grab onsets from previous words. Let's play around with that. And then they listen to Spanish and they're like, whoa, I can understand it so much better. And so it's just like that little bit of knowledge that all of a sudden does this light bulb thing. I always thought Spanish was so fast, but now I realize it was just because I wasn't grabbing the endings and letting them be beginnings. And now that I'm doing that, Mm -hmm. everything makes so much more sense. So it's really rewarding, I think, to be able to kind of see people along that journey at whatever stage, L1 or L2. That's so cool. That I love that you used the coda and onset example. 
Uh, And it's making me think of the editing that I do for the podcast, where that um, the onset that we create with English sometimes makes things easy, sometimes makes it hard. And now I'm like, man, I'm kind of glad I don't really have to edit audio that is in Spanish right now, because that sounds like it would be really tricky to splice things and jam them together the sneaky way that I do sometimes. So that... I like I want to try it just to see, but that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. So in that project and in some others, I know that you've mentored students through their own research and also included students in that project, uh, which is such a cool thing that students who are studying linguistics and other languages and linguistics get to do while they're at Western. And I'm wondering if you could speak to something awesome that students can gain from conducting or even presenting research while they're an undergrad, in addition to, of course, yeah, I did this on like a resume, which is the best, but other things that students could gain from that. Yeah. I mean, I will acknowledge that I am probably not the best source of information for this, for their perspective, but from my perspective of what they are gaining from this experience, in addition to a line on a CV, just a lot of things. In this particular project, we have from the beginning really relied on the work and the insight of Spanish and linguistics students. So there's a huge overlap here at Western between Spanish majors and linguistics majors, um, or Spanish majors, Mm -hmm. linguistic minors, or linguistics majors, Spanish minors. And a big component, I will say, of this research is that it's not just focused on how this explicit uh, phonological instruction is improving the perception or production of Spanish language learners. Because it's not just all about how these language learners can use Spanish or can uh, perceive Spanish, but about their language learning experience. And it seems like one of the things that this explicit instruction does is it gives students uh, confidence and excitement about learning the language. And I don't think that that's attributable solely to metalinguistic awareness of the differences (laughs) between the phonological system in Spanish and the phonological system of English. But a big part of it, I think, comes from these students in intermediate level Spanish classes seeing the active involvement in the research of upper division students in Spanish and in linguistics conducting the research and engaging with the students in, okay, so when I was, you know, doing Spanish early on, here's a misconception that I had, and then this was explained to me, and this is something that came, you know, about in my language learning after that. And so this kind of, like, role model and kind of peer example of this is what continuing to think about linguistics and Spanish, this is what that will result in for you as well if you continue in them, I think that's been a huge part of it. And so many of the ways that the undergraduate researchers are involved is we have lab days um, throughout the quarter in Dr. Christian Dricke's um, intermediate Spanish classes where the undergraduate research team, they basically teach class. They're like, all right, hey, here we are. Let's, let's, lots of different things, right? Let's, Mm -hmm. uh, one lab day, for instance, is we're going to identify what vowels, how we create vowels, what formants are, how we record ourselves using prot, how we analyze that formant structure, how we can identify if we're saying a vowel with 
a different pitch than another vowel, if we're saying a vowel longer than another vowel, um, if we are off-gliding our vowels or diphthongizing our vowels, if we are reducing our vowels, how can we hear those things? How can we see those things? And so from the student researcher perspective, having the opportunity to like be that hands-on in the language teaching, in the instruction aspect of it, has been really big for them, like getting that kind of like hands-on experience. Um, mm -hmm. But then also, like all of this research that we're doing, then we uh, get the opportunity to present it at different conferences, write papers about the research that we're conducting. And and so, the, I mean, there's this huge benefit at learning how to clearly and concisely explain the cool things that you're learning, uh, which we don't, I mean, mm -hmm. we get some opportunities in the classroom to do that kind of work as well, but to be able to yeah. do it on kind of a, a bigger scale um, Mm -hmm. is is a huge benefit and then also just the access that one gets when you go to a conference to be able to listen to and learn from so many other people is huge yeah and at least in the pronunciation and second language learning and teaching all of these researchers whose papers you know you're reading and you're sitting there in awe of wow they have such great ideas and man they've discovered so many cool things and you put them you maybe put them on a pedestal of like, wow, that's a famous person there. But then you go to a conference and they're sitting there at your talk and they're listening and they ask you a really interesting question. And then they ask you for some follow-up and you ask them questions and they're just normal humans. And so being able to have those kind of interactions with real live famous linguist people, I think is another great benefit mm -hmm. of participating in any kind of research project as an undergrad. It's probably a, a small portion of of the benefits of it. Yeah, totally. The peer mentorship that you talked about sounds so awesome. And I hadn't even realized it's not just like there's this research that happens and then it gets applied to the Spanish classes and then the Spanish learning happens in a slightly different way based on the research. And then we go from there and evaluate. Those students are actually, they're seeing how that research happens and then they're seeing like the nitty gritty of phonology, like teaching them like how to recognize formants. Like that's so cool that they get to go that in depth. And even if it's just for a lab day, that the fact that they're exposed to how technical some of it is and here's what, what you produced in a waveform. Like you, you did that and here's like, that's just so cool that they get to have that in depth of an experience in their language learning. And with the conferences, I can totally speak to that being the case. Definitely mm -hmm. had one of those moments recently where I got to meet a very cool person in the linguistics world. And it was at a conference and I was like, it was on Gathertown. And I was fully in pajamas, had literally just rolled out of bed to be like, I'll just check Gathertown out and see what it looks like because I've never been on there. And this person came right up to me and I was like, ah, Hi. <laughs> and I kept it together and very proud of myself. I stayed cool, stayed calm, but then <laughs> like immediately got over like, oh yeah, wait, they're still just a person too. They do incredible things and I they're a huge inspiration for me, but just a person also, it's going to be fine. And you're going to have to get used to talking with this person because this is a small conference and it's got four more days. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I love that. It really sounds like 
an incredible experience for students to pursue. And the fascination and love that you talk about the work that you do is so evident, especially through that. So I'm wondering, how did you get into studying and teaching linguistics in the first place? Mm. I came to Western for my undergraduate degree um, right out of high school. And I took fall quarter of my freshman year. I took uh, Linguistics 201 from Duan Shipley. And it was super fun. Uh, the reason I registered for it in the first place was because my older sister was majoring at that time in brain and cognitive science and linguistics at University of Rochester. And I was like, Aaron, I, what should I take? What classes? I knew which ones I had to take and then just trying to fill out the schedule otherwise. And that was super fun. But it wasn't really what I was planning on uh, majoring in. My goal when I came to college was um, I was going to teach German in the secondary schools. That was my, that was my plan. I was going to be a German teacher. And so I got my German major. But I came with some credits, and the German major doesn't require a whole lot of credits, and I needed to have so many upper division credits and so many total credits to graduate, and so I just had a lot of electives that I got to choose, <laughs> whatever I wanted to take. And so I just took whatever was fun, like Ling 201. And then I kept on taking other linguistics classes as they were available, and I remember meeting with my uh, German advisor, you know, for degree evaluation stuff near the end. And, mm -hmm. uh, he said to me, wait, you're a German major. I was like, of course I'm a German major. I've been taking all of these German classes. Um, Oops. and, and he, and he said, well, yes, no, I just, I meant, what about linguistics? Have you not also been taking many linguistics classes? I was like, well, I just do those for fun, you know, cause I have room in my schedule. <laughs> and so we looked at which linguistics classes I had taken and which classes were not necessarily linguistics classes, but which might be able to count as linguistics classes like um, methods and materials in second language teaching, classes like that. And it turns out that if I could manage to take Linguistics 204, Sociolinguistics, my last quarter of my senior year, then I could have two majors instead. And um, I know. And so I think this is a really good example of just like doing what's fun and, mm -hmm. and things work out. So I graduated with German and linguistics majors. And then my, my teachers said, have you thought about grad school? And I thought, well, kinda, but may, I don't know. Uh, and so I took a year <laughs> off uh, in between undergrad and grad school, um, applied for some grad schools in linguistics because, you know, that was apparently the fun stuff and ended up going to grad school in linguistics at University of Arizona. Go Wildcats, bear down. And, <laughs> uh, and then came back here, back to Western to, to teach when I was done there. So I kind of fell into it because it was so exciting. I love that falling into an experience definitely speaks to my own. I know it's not everybody's, but I do think generally linguistics is not a known about thing prior to undergrad or at least mm -hmm. in non-academic spaces like that depends I think a lot on cultural context on an area of course but that like oh man this I can do this and then not even that like oh I intend to pursue this but just that's pretty cool we'll just stick with this for a little bit and yeah it's pretty great and I love that also 
the I won't impose a label of advice on it, but following what's fun, I think is such an important thing, definitely in the undergrad academic space. Who knows? The thing that's fun might be the thing. Yeah. So why not follow it or put time into it? Or maybe you merge it with another thing that you thought was the thing. So. And that's a great thing about our major is that it works so well with so many other majors. I don't know what the percentages are, um, but my perception is that a very large number of our linguistics majors are double majors in mm-hmm. linguistics and whatever else. Um, mm-hmm. And it's often because we fell into things. A student earlier today, actually in class, we were talking about early learning about linguistics stuff and how that happens in an intro class, like in the 200 level, often like sometime during our undergraduate career. And they said, so I took 201 and then I was like, oh, shoot, I guess I'm going to have to add another minor. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like that's Mm -hmm. just the experience. It's like, what? How did I not know about this before? If I had known about it before, I could have been doing this this whole time. But instead, I have to start it now. And -hmm. it's not really like it's an option. (laughs) The way that it was expressed was kind of like the way it was for me as well. Oh, well, I guess I'm going to have to do this now. Yeah, same for me, where I had no clue what I was interested in studying, and I started at a different school where that was totally the norm, and I just happened to like overhear friends who had either taken linguistics programs at that school or had like were planning to take it and it was it was just a coworker who happened to mention oh yeah I'm taking this program next fall and it's linguistics and I'm excited about it and I was like oh huh and I knew people who had taken it and then like day 1 was just oh oh <laughs> that oh well and like I had to switch schools for it because I just wanted so much more in-depth learning than was unfortunately available there but it became the path and then combining it with other stuff absolutely has been I know a lot of people also who pair it with some cool stuff so it sounds like you did find linguistics relatively early on in terms of like your academic path and I'm wondering what's a change that you've seen in the field over that time hmm I'm sure there have been many (laughs) (laughs) one thing that I've noticed so I did. I got an undergraduate degree in, in linguistics and I went to grad school and I had an undergraduate degree in linguistics, but not everyone did. It was probably three of my cohort in grad school actually had undergraduate degrees in linguistics and the rest oh. like went to... I know, you're surprised. <laughs> um, I am. <laughs> and others had degrees in related things, but it wasn't that everyone had an undergraduate degree in linguistics before going to graduate school. And that's something that I think is um, has changed. Along with that change is how much linguistics is available at the undergraduate level. When I did the linguistics degree here at, at Western Major, it was still a student-faculty-designed major. So it didn't have a set number of these very specific classes taken in this order create it. Instead, it was, we have a major, and it's so flexible, and there are lots of different classes that could count toward it. But it's now much more established, all of the different variety of classes that we have to offer, um, that you don't take all of the classes, you take a subset of the available classes, and you have your major in that. And that we've expanded what kinds of classes are available, and how many different faculty we have teaching in so many different branches, 
so that's a, a big difference, just the amount of information in linguistics, the amount of knowledge that you can come out of undergrad knowing compared to when I was an undergrad doing it. Now that's a, a big change. It's like mm -hmm. students who graduate with linguistics majors now know so much more than I knew when I was done. Like, I feel like I knew nothing now. <laughs> I have no idea how I even got into grad school. Um, so that's, that's one change. But I think another change that's maybe more salient in the field as a whole is the amount of how much computers are used in linguistics now, whether that is through corpus linguistics or through um, natural language processing, or if that is in uh, applications of statistical techniques in order to analyze data that uh, come about through the conducting of experiments that were designed using computers. Um, it seems now that there is a lot more overlap between those fields than, than there used to be. Mm -hmm. And it seems much more of a prerequisite if you want to continue in the field. Maybe not all parts of linguistics, but across many more areas of linguistics than before to be able to have a solid grasp of how to familiarity with and an ability to use computers to do some of your research across all of those domains, corpus linguistics, um, statistical analysis, uh, computer programming in order to mine corpora to be able to find the data that you're looking to analyze, things like that. I think that is a, a pretty significant change over the last 15 years. Yeah. One thing I've been fortunate to do while also completing my linguistics degree is take stats through my minor, and I had no clue how important that would be or how important it would feel yeah. and that was a very valuable thing I think to have with linguistics because I so see that like you said that it's becoming more more prominent to do statistical analysis with a variety of software like it just mm -hmm. becomes a helpful tool to have to get the thing done <laughs> or to answer the questions you want to answer Oh, and then, yeah, the variety of what we can study, too. I think I always compare it in my head to, like, physics or, like, I don't know, an art or something that has been a thing people could study in an academic space for years and years and years. And it's so interesting being in a field of study that is so rapidly changing, or at least feels like it, and also the body of knowledge that you are expected to have at a certain point in your degree, or by the time you complete it, or when you enter grad school, it just feels so much different from, like, pursuing a math degree and having to learn all of math that has ever existed. I know that really oversimplifies how that works, but it is, it is just a really cool experience to watch that actively happen, like what is available to us to study and how much that can change in what feels like a short time and to think about what that might look like, what linguistic students in 20 years might be mm -hmm. covering, which I'm sure will be very cool. What's a change you'd like to see in the field? Again, there are probably many. Before I answer that, can I come back to what you just mentioned about the comparison with physics? Absolutely. I think Jenny Dawson maybe mentioned something similar, but 
one thing that is like super, super cool about linguistics is that you can be two years into your linguistics degree and you can have a new question and a new way of answering that question that other people in linguistics, one, haven't asked yet or haven't asked in quite the same way yet, and two, are interested in knowing the answer to. That is, you don't really need, you know, your PhD in order to be able to contribute something novel to the field. And that is something that, yeah, I wonder in 20 years and 50 years and 100 years, like, to what extent will that still be the case, right? That you can just start to figure out, wow, language can be studied like this? And then immediately hop into that ongoing conversation, that discussion that is linguistic science. And I don't know if it'll be, you know, I, I imagine just the more that we learn, the, the bigger the scope of our collective understanding of language and language processes are, the harder it will be to be able to immediately make these kind of contributions to the field. But I think that that's one thing that's really cool that undergraduates here at Western, you, that, like, that you are asking these kinds of interesting questions and then answering these kinds of interesting questions and then getting the opportunity to, like, share with other people the stuff that you discovered and that there's nothing really different about your work than that of somebody who's been in the field for 15 years. That is, we're all just kind of like continuing this conversation together and it doesn't matter hugely how far along in the conversation you are or whether you just hopped into the chat room two years ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but like that we all have this ability to kind of contribute to the field and that you can do it so early on in the process, I think is really amazing and awesome. And one of the coolest things about linguistics um, as a field of study is how accessible it is. Yeah. Speaking of how accessible yeah. it is, I'm now transitioning <laughs> to your other question. <laughs> what is something that I want to see uh, change? We still have a ways to go about making linguistics accessible mm -hmm. and representative. And there are lots of directions that I could take this, but I think I think one area that I would like to see changed in linguistics is making linguistics earlier available to students. So many people are like, why did I not know about this until right, college? Why did I not know about this until I took this, you know, intro class at this liberal arts college or whatever? Yeah, yeah. But when they do take this intro level intro to sociolinguistics or intro to linguistic science or intro to whatever one of the most common refrains is, I wish I had known about this earlier. It, this has changed the way that I think about language, or it changes the way that I interact with people who are language doers, mm -hmm. or it changes the way that I understand how humans do this, or it changes the way that I perceive my own language use, or the language use of my family, or... yeah. It's just, this is information, this is knowledge that I think we need to get to students so much earlier that can change the way that we interact with one another as humans. Mm -hmm. When we start to realize that, like, there's no, there's no wrong way to do this. And even if people have said that the way that you do this or the way that your family does this is wrong, like, that's not, that's not a real thing. That's that's a stuck on top of your language use thing, and that's a, a something that you can reject, and then that's okay. And when people see more about linguistic diversity, how many different ways there are of doing language, 
um, that that creates a, a different perspective of interacting with humans as well, seeing the incredible value that is brought into the world through these different ways of doing language. That's something that we really shouldn't be uh, limiting to those who are fortunate enough to get to take a linguistics class at a two or four year college. Mm -hmm. That's something that Wow. Can you even imagine how things would be different if starting in kindergarten, we had explicit training in language variation and in linguistic discrimination and in just all of these different aspects that we come across in our 201s and our 204s and our 207s. But if we had that very early on and we could... <laughs> We could grow up an entire generation of people with genuine appreciation for linguistic diversity rather than reluctant tolerance or ignorance. Mm -hmm. Like, what a different world. Yeah, yeah. I love that you directly brought up the, the refrain, the, wow, I wish I'd learned this earlier, and like, what a novel concept listening to when people say that and implementing the thing because chances are people aren't going to stop saying that if things stay the way they are. And it makes me think of, I always think about the kids of my professors, my linguistics professors, and I'm like, man, those kids just got the coolest thing so early on. And they're <laughs> so lucky. And I bet they treat so many people so good so early and I love the idea of linguistic awareness or education on linguistic variety for really young kids. That's because they're aware of it, of course. Mm -hmm. Like, they know what's happening. And so to contextualize some of that or have them analyze it together sounds like it would be really wonderful and really fruitful in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are people who are working on this already. I would, I would be remiss not to mention the work of uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Kristen Denham and others who are working at bringing linguistic instruction to the K through 12 curriculum. But it's something that, that I want to see more of. Yeah, same. Yeah. So sticking with that classroom setting, although within the underground route, within the undergrad realm where we reside currently. Is there anything that makes teaching linguistics challenging? Mm -hmm. Well, there's lots, actually, that make teaching linguistics. You highlighted one earlier when you said that it's changing, mm. right? Like the, the, the what it is that's like foundational knowledge in linguistics that is changing. We're constantly learning more stuff, which is great, but also it means that what gets taught in foundational classes is not always the same year to year. That is, what I teach now is different than what I <laughs> taught in the exact same class, you know, a decade ago. Also, because the field is so broad, right? I mean, the field is so broad, it's everything. We don't do life without doing language. And so basically anything that you're interested in is actually a hidden linguistics class, if only a linguist were, you know, wanting to teach it. So there are so many things that could possibly be taught. How do we choose what to teach? Well, one of the ways that you can choose what to teach is to teach whatever's interesting to you. And another thing is that you can teach whatever's interesting to the students that you're going to be teaching. 
And that's a cool thing. But in so doing, uh, you have to learn a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, this last, uh, ooh, it was a year ago, last summer, <laughs> uh, I got to teach a um, constructed language class. Yeah. Class on um, constructed languages. And while I am interested in constructed languages and find that they are interesting, um, I was primarily interested in teaching the class because it seems to have such a wide range of interests, both from people who are already identified as linguists and those that are like, I'm a creative writing person, but I want to make a language for this thing that I'm writing. Or, mm -hmm. I don't know, I like pop culture. Consequently, I must love these <laughs> constructed languages. And so, like, I'd, I had to learn a lot, which is great and also makes teaching hard when every single class that you're teaching, you have to learn a lot of stuff um, continually, constantly be learning new stuff in mm -hmm. order to be able to, uh, to teach this stuff great and challenging. Along with that, I'm noting now that students are coming into linguistics, you know, some completely naive, like you, you and I, when we started doing linguistics, we were like, what? What is this? This yeah. is cool. Um, but now I have students who are like, well, I mean, I have studied linguistics on my own, apart from classes for the last five years. Like, what? How? Where? <laughs> who? <laughs> What have you been yeah, reading? Yeah. Who are you? Ha All right, so what are you going to teach me today? <laughs> and it feels like that for real as a as a teacher that constantly I am just learning new things from people in my classes. Oh, you read a cool paper. Tell me more about that. Ah, uh, I don't know that thing. I mean, constantly it's like that. I'm constantly learning new things, <laughs> even in the classes that ostensibly I am teaching. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is great, um, but it is definitely also a challenge. There is no, there is no pick up a slide deck that I used eight years ago and <laughs> walk through it. There is none of that. It is much more a collaborative process of what are we learning this week? I have some ideas mm -hmm. and I have some paths to take us down, but it may be that your interests as students and your background knowledge as students are different than I'm anticipating. Um, and so we're going to, you know, forge some new paths together. So that idea of like, knowing in advance exactly what we're going to be covering is not really a thing that happens often when I'm mm -hmm. teaching, at least. <laughs> I find that I am constantly <laughs> revising and changing and going new directions, uh, which keeps it exciting, mm -hmm. uh, but also keeps it challenging. Yeah, a chase. Yes. Yeah. Yes, because there's there's something that we're like, we, we all spot something and we want to get there. And so we're constantly like... How how should we do that? I don't know. Give me a day. I'll come back to you with some plans. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> some new things to read, and then we'll see where we go from there. Yeah. That is one of the coolest things that I feel like I've gotten to see being in the department in my time at Western is the variety of classes that have started to appear. And one of the things where I'm like, I'm done with school for a little bit. I'm going to be done. And also a very lovely self-reminder of you don't hate learning. You're still very excited about this. And you would take all of those classes after you're gone if you could, because mm -hmm. there are so many cool things that are continuing to be offered. And that that's one of my favorite things about yeah, our department in particular that there's just the variety and the enthusiasm of the professors behind those things and the energy that y'all put into like 
learning the new stuff so we can talk about the things that we are excited about already but would also like to learn more about that's one of the coolest things um maybe it's semi-answered already maybe not what's something you love about teaching linguistics too much (laughs) uh especially if we're already going a little bit long I, i will highlight two things i think Unless as I'm talking, it, it's clear that it's actually three things. <laughs> One thing that I love about teaching linguistics is, as alluded to earlier, linguistics is everywhere. It seems to be such a foundational part of our experience as humans, mm-hmm. the language component. Mm-hmm. And so it really feels like in learning more about language and about language users, that I am, we are learning more about what it means to be human in this really foundational way. Like, who are we and what is our place in the world and who are we connected to other people? It seems like language is just at the heart of that. And so by by being able to think a little bit more about language, we get to think a little bit more about our own identity and about our place in the world. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) that kind of connection, this like philosophical and metaphysical connection to like Mm -hmm. all that is, is I think a really powerful aspect of language. I think one of the things that we humans do is we create, we are creative. Even if you don't identify as like a creative person, like, like we, I think we have this drive to create, whether that's create relationships, create um, ideas, create stories, create tools, create, we're creative beings. Mm -hmm. And I think nowhere is that creativity more evident than in, than in language, right? This productive process of we've got this finite set of sounds and we've got this finite set of rules for putting these sounds into words and these words into phrases and these phrases into big old utterances and and yet we can create brand new things out of nothing through through language we can we can create ideas in the brains of other people by just sticking the right sounds in the right order like how crazy is that it's magic (laughs) really yeah and the idea that we can like formally study (laughs) how we create um with language is just it's fascinating and i don't know of any other I am pretty sure that every professor of every discipline feels this way about their discipline, but I don't know of any other field (laughs) that is so all-encompassing and that is so powerfully explanatory of of the human condition as linguistics. So that's thing one. That's super exciting about teaching (laughs) linguistics. Um, and, And thing two, thing two is the students. Like, you all just are so freaking smart and insightful and have the greatest ideas and it would be one thing to just like to do linguistics on my own or like to conduct research and write about it or whatever but i'd be missing so much that comes from the classroom that comes from like the conversations that happen with students it just changes the way that i think about things and how one contribution from one student can shape conversation for two weeks (laughs) and how at the end of some quarter we'll be talking about something and someone will be like wait but didn't they mention back in week two isn't this just that same thing 
this idea that we are co-creators of, of knowledge, of understanding, and of connection to one another, and that we do it all, all through language, is... That's why I love doing the teaching part, and not just the doing linguistics on my own in a secluded lab or something <laughs> like that, um, but doing it with other people because... Because, man, you, you all are smart. Um, and, and I just, I love being able to listen to the conversations that you have, to be able to participate in the discussions that you have, to be able to eavesdrop as I walk around the room or, you know, in this online setting, eavesdrop on the discussion board. It's the coolest thing ever. Like, to have that be your job, to, like, get to learn from other people and get to, like, help them learn new things also. Uh, it's, it's the best. Mm -hmm. So I guess it was just two. Just two things. Just two things. Two things that I feel like took me on a journey of gratitude and <laughs> feeling. Uh, the first thing, thank you on behalf of all of the students. We appreciate y'all so much, especially for your enthusiasm that fuels us. I feel like you so brilliantly encapsulated a thing that I have tried to articulate over and over again when people ask what the past year has felt like class-wise and what I miss or what I feel like, you know, what what the most, what the biggest bummer, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe not the biggest bummer, maybe the most standout thing that miss, this missing for me is those conversations, like you said, that can redirect where the overarching conversation goes for a couple weeks. And it makes me think of also, like you said, the creative mechanisms of language, the creative foundation of language, that so much of the communication that I've done in class over the last year has had to be so structured. The breakout rooms mm -hmm. are so mm -hmm. structured as much yeah. as they can be, you know, cool spaces for people to have smaller conversations. There's a lot of structure involved. Calling somebody on the phone there's structure involved. You have to set mm -hmm. a time. I miss the five or 10 minutes before a class would start yes. where we'd just be sitting in a room or when we'd be told, turn to the person next to you and mm -hmm. just talk about a thing. And maybe the professor has called you all back, but you're still kind of like talking about the thing that was so exciting because you can, even though like, meh, but you can. I miss that so much, mm -hmm. that spontaneity of discussion and that, I think, is so hard to replicate. Maybe not impossible, I wouldn't say. But yeah, that also is one one thing that I've felt to be very cool. And of course, all the meta layers of thinking about that and like, oh, wow, we're studying why this is so cool. But mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, there can be a great benefit, I think, to having that structure. And I know a lot of students learn well with a lot of that structure mm -hmm. set, but it is not my favorite. Um, mm -hmm. my favorite really is to walk the paths that we as a class decide to walk together to get to a destination that, you know, is one of a, of a couple that I think are reasonable for us to get to 10 weeks from now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and how am I supposed to know in the beginning of the quarter, <laughs> what one path is the best one to get from here to there? I miss those those things that come up in class that are like, well, I mean, I had thought that we may do this as an assignment, but instead, obviously, you all are going to go find an example of this because that's what we're going to talk about next time we're together. And just kind of like the flexibility that that affords in the in-class 
situation that's really hard to recreate online. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. At least and it I, has been really hard yeah. for me in this last year to recreate online. I, I Maybe it's not hard in general. Totally. Yeah. I think it is tricky. I think when we are navigating through this separate medium to do our communicating, that, mm-hmm. it, that there's this extra step of getting my brain thoughts out my mouth into your brain thoughts. There's this other thing they have to pass through. And it just... I, I can feel that in all of the communication that I have done. And then, you know, you speak to the structure that is sometimes reassuring in knowing the overarching structure of a class and where we will end up. But in a field of study where so many things are still very hypothetical, I'm like, well, we're already there. We're already in the hypothetical space. So cool. Let's see where we end up. <laughs> the end of it well jordan this has been such an awesome conversation i'm so grateful to have gotten to sit down and talk to you i have two wrap-up questions before we part i'm ready awesome the first is if you could bring back a class or create a class on any topic as broad or as narrow as you want what would it be okay this 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 class is the one that I would do. I would want to have a class where first you sign up for the class and then you dictate what gets learned in the class. And then I am just sitting there as a facilitator and a curator of information and a a conversation uh, leader for us to discover whatever that thing is. So it would work something like this. Um, 300 level, no no prerequisites. Um, so, you know, we've got people who are linguists and people who don't know yet that they are linguists. That's a thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost as like you don't choose linguistics. Linguistics chooses you. And then you're like, <laughs> when did you discover that you were a linguist? It's not like, when did you decide to become a linguist? It's like, when did you find out? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so a class where people can find out that they are in fact linguists. Mm-hmm where you submit like part of the signing up for the classes you have to submit your topic ideas and then we try to topicalize a lot of different language things across different weeks so it's a limited class right okay it's a seminar class we've got 10 because we only have 10 weeks we've got 10 people that get to register for this class but in registering for this class you get to decide what we learn for one week but it has to be submitted like long enough in advance that like that class can actually truly be prepped mm-hmm that that's what i would love right because like letting students kind of decide like what do you want to learn whatever it is that you're excited about learning you know that there are other people who are also going to be very excited about learning that stuff Mm -hmm. and even in this class if it's like six of the ten things you were really passionate about learning more about and four you were like "Eh," like that's still really good odds (laughs) yeah (laughs) like have six percent of the class be stuff that you were like fascinated by Mm -hmm. i think this harkens back to like yeah I, I, I mean, I've gotten to teach a lot of different classes and propose a lot of different classes. I really enjoyed a class on, um, language and identity Mm -hmm. that I taught a couple of years ago. And I would like to bring that back. But in reality, what I want to teach is what students want to learn. I want to teach exactly what students want to learn. And then I want to go beyond that to what they didn't know that they wanted to learn, but then they realized that they did. And so if there could be a class like that, that would be the coolest. I think. I think so too. <laughs> right? 
once again, every time I ask this question, I like beat myself up a little bit. And I'm like, why did you do that? Because then it's just asking someone to wave in front of your face all the things that you will not have been around to take, but also are so excited that they exist. Yeah. Who knows? Now that we have Zoom, there may be professors receiving emails from me that are like, hey, can you just set me up on a phone in the corner? And I'll just... I won't be a bother. <laughs> I just want to eavesdrop. That's it. <laughs> I just want to eavesdrop. That's all. Yeah, that would be incredible. I think one thing that I really appreciate is the discussion, the times when we get to structure the discussion that happens in classes. And again, feeling so starved from that this past year, that mm-hmm. sounds like the most beautiful buffet <laughs> of of linguistics class. That'd be incredible. I hope the future students get to have that. My last question, which now feels like the most wonderful bow to tie this whole interview together. What's something you wish you knew more about? (laughs) Oh, man. No, that's an impossible question because you said what's something and it's clear now. (laughs) There is no one thing that I want to learn more about. I want to know all of the things. (laughs) Mm-hmm. But I am staring off into the distance trying to think, is there one thing that has come up recently for me of a thing that I want to learn more mm-hmm. about? I-, I wish I could just, like, take you on all of the paths <laughs> that my brain went down. <laughs> all of them, you know, like, considered and then rejected as appropriate for communicating about <laughs> on this particular podcast. Because um, there's too many. There's too many. Okay cop-out answer, but really authentic answer. The thing that I want to learn more about is the thing that you, whoever is, ends up listening to this, and, and you, <laughs> just who are listening to this in this moment, the thing that you are passionate about. Like, whatever that thing is for you, whatever that thing that just, like, makes you excited, the thing that you want to talk about, the thing that you really think everyone else should know about? That's the thing I want to learn about. I want to learn about it from you. Like, what is the thing for you that... For me, clearly, it's language, right? Like, Mm -hmm. the thing that I'm passionate about and the thing that I could talk to anyone about for, like, really any amount of period of time, whatever your background is. And I think we all have those things. For some people, it's language. For some people, it's baking. For some people, it's sport. For some people, it is science fiction novels. For some people, it is this fantasy world that you've created. For some people, it's a different thing for everyone, but I want to learn about it from from the people who are passionate about it, whoever, whoever has a thing. I want to know from you. I love that. I love learning from people who are excited about stuff. You said it was a cop-out answer, and then you pulled out, like, a golden Uno reverse card and just slapped it on the table. Oh, my God. Incredible. Well, it's from being surrounded by so many amazing people here. Like, mm-hmm. like, and maybe it comes a little bit from, like, Kristen, Anne, they, they were teachers here at Western when I was an undergraduate student. I got to learn from them. And, Mm -hmm. like, now I'm teaching beside them? How crazy is that? (laughs) But it goes to show that, like, it's contagious. Like, when you're passionate about something and you're excited about something, it's hard. 
it's hard for that not to bleed into everyone else. Like I, I am sure that a large amount of my excitement for learning linguistics and for teaching linguistics comes from the people that I have learned from. Mm-hmm. Some, some of whom, oh, Ed, Vida, I, I took 311. Well, I think it was 315 then, phonology from <laughs> Ed Vida. And I took syntax from Kristen and like, my professors in grad school, they were passionate and excited and they knew so much. And like, it's so exciting to learn from people who are excited about what they're teaching. And so, of course, I want to learn <laughs> things from whoever's excited about something. I want to learn that from them, from you all. I think it was a stellar answer. I think that was an excellent path to go down for that one. <laughs> Even though it was a cop-out answer. <laughs> Contested. Debatable. <laughs> I respect the label and also (laughs) I contest. Well, thank you, Jordan, so much for being on this episode of The Podling. I appreciate it. It's been awesome to talk to you. Thank you for having me. It was very fun to talk to you, too. I am smiling broadly. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you for the description. (laughs) Bye, (laughs) y'all. Bye.